Welcome to Cranford Radio. My name is Bernie Wagenblast. It's Independence Day weekend, and our guest this week certainly fits in with the theme of American freedom. His name is Jay Boxwell Jr. He's a Cranford resident, and he's the new state commander of the Department of the New Jersey Veterans of Foreign Wars. Jay, welcome to Cranford Radio. Thank you, Bernie. Pleasure to be here being a Cranford resident and uh, being the second uh, state commander from uh, Cranford. So it's a pleasure. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, who your predecessor was from Cranford a bit later, but I thought maybe the best place to start off since this organization that you're leading in New Jersey is the Veterans of Foreign Wars. That means you're a veteran. And why don't we talk uh, just a little bit about your experience in the military? Tell us about what you did and uh, how you served, if you would, please. So it started, I guess, my, I want to say, infatuation with the military. You know, uh, probably every male member uh, in my family going back to uh, the Civil War has served some sort of service in the military. Um, and it was my dad that I most remember that he was a Marine, served uh, as an advisor in Vietnam back in, uh, had to been uh, early 60 to 61 before Vietnam really jumped off. And uh, he had his foot blown off uh, while he was over there uh, from uh, a landmine. And I remember him speaking about uh, the Navy corpsman that saved his life. And as I, you know, got to, you know, age to go to college, uh, my dad got laid off from his job and, you know, couldn't afford uh, for, for me to go to college. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go, uh, go to military. And my dad refused to sign for me to go in as a Marine. That's what, that was my first choice mm-hmm. and, uh, refused for me to go. He said, I want you to go in. If you're going to go into military, do something where you're going to learn something, use your head and, uh, you know, be a productive, uh, part of the military, so to speak. So I, I remember the stories of talking about that, you know, the corpsman that saved his life. So I said, Hey pop, I said, how about if I go in as a corpsman? And he's like, he said, that'd be great. He said, you can learn a lot of good things with that. All his intentions were that I'd be stationed at some naval hospital somewhere, <laughs> but um, <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't end up that way. Um, so, so, uh, you know, so I went into military and, and went to corpsman school and, and graduated top of my class. And uh, they offered me any duty station that I wanted. And uh, I said, I don't want a duty station. I said, I want to go to field med school so I can be with the Marines. And uh, so I got my orders. I went to field med school down at Camp Johnson in North Carolina, um, told my dad that I was going to Camp Johnson and, and he got a little upset that I was going <laughs> down there, so to speak. And, uh, you know, finished Camp Johnson. And I said, and he was like, well, that's good. They're not, they're not going to send any, uh, any green uh, corpsman out with the Marine unit. And he said, so where are your orders at? I said, well, I'm going over to Mainside, Camp Lejeune. And he said, oh, that's good. You're going to the Naval Hospital. I said, well, no, not exactly. I said, I'm going to 2nd Marine Division. And come to find out that 2nd Marine Division was the same unit. Well, the the unit that he was in was the same unit that I was going to be in. Oh, wow. uh, uh, 20 years later. Um, So he knew exactly what I was getting into. So, uh, you know, so he he was not not happy that I was going with the 2nd Marines. Um, So, you know, know, once we got past that hurdle, uh, you know, he was very supportive because he knew exactly what I was doing and, and where I was going to be. And, you know, good, good group of guys that I was with. Um, and, and, you know, so I started my time, you know, down in Camp Lejeune. And uh, my first deployment was uh, down to Honduras. Uh, we were advisors down there uh, during the Iran-Contra under Oliver North um, with the uh, rebellion against Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. So we would go across the border and, you know, provide, uh, you know, 
combat tactics to the to the rebels down there and, and how to fight back against the, the communists and whatnot. So I was in and out of Honduras and Nicaragua for about six, seven months. And then I came back home and uh, was stateside for geez, probably about two, three months. And that's when uh, we ended up uh, heading over uh, to Libya where uh, it was right after Muammar Gaddafi had blown up the Pan American jet. And uh, mm-hmm. President Reagan's response was, they go in and bomb Tripoli. Um, and we actually were on the ground in Tripoli as a covert operation, uh, marking the buildings with the radioactive dye. That's how it was back in the early 80s. Um, so we could launch our missiles so they could track onto the buildings. Um, so we, we actually were on the ground in Libya um, covertly. Nobody knew that we were there and we did the bombing and we'd gone back in and assessed, you know, what the, the bombs had, had done and whatnot. And uh, we went and paddled back out and got picked up, uh, you know, by a, a naval vessel, you know, a couple miles offshore and uh, we left, you know, but, um, wow, you know, that, that, that mission actually wasn't, wasn't a success. If you, you read the, uh, the history books, you know, it was the uh, Italian prime minister that uh, tipped off Gaddafi that the United States was coming to get him because the Italian prime minister wouldn't let us use the base in Siganella as a launching point. We actually had to go to Cyprus um, to launch from there. Um, so he got tipped off and it wasn't a successful mission of what they wanted to do. Um, but I think it sent a clear message, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then came back stateside and uh, our unit was breaking up. We had, you know, finished our tour and because we were a superstar team, you know, they gave us wherever we wanted to go or, you know, high profile duties. So from there, I was on uh, President Reagan's advanced medical team. Um, for the International Naval Review, which, uh, if folks remember, was back up here for the 100th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. um, when the president was up here. Um, I had come up here and uh, trained, uh, you know, St. Vincent's Hospital, Bellevue Hospital on President Reagan's medical issues because they were our, our hospitals of choice should there have been an incident with the president. Um, and then I also went over and uh, trained the Naval Vessel Medical Department's um, that he was going to be stopping on. And that was the, the JFK, the aircraft carrier um, in the USS Iowa. Um, and it was at that point that I realized, you know, how stellar the USS Iowa crew was um, in the medical department at that point. Um, and they had a great Marine detachment on there as well. Um, so when my, my time with uh, the president uh, ended up, they asked me where I wanted to go. And I said, I really would like to go uh, back to the USS Iowa. You know, that was a great ship. Um, great, great team that was on there. And uh, I think I would fit in well. Um, so they, they sent my service jacket to the CEO and, and uh, for him to review because it was a handpicked crew. Because if you remember back in the 80s, late 80s, we only had four battleships that were reactivated, mm-hmm. um, 1,500 members of each crew. So it was a, it was a really tight knit group. Um, and there were handpicked crews that they that they wanted to have on these boats because they were they were showboats, really. And mm-hmm. uh, and they wanted to have their best uh, sailors and Marines on it. So, so it came back that, yeah, I was uh, acceptable for the crew. Um, <laughs> so, so I spent my next uh, two and a half years uh, on a battleship uh, traveling around the world. And our, our last deployment that I was on was uh, during the Iraq, uh, Iran wars, the oil tanker wars back in 80, uh, 87 to late 88 um, when they were blown up oil tankers. And, uh, the responsibility that I had on there was with the Marine unit and uh, we would actually board oil tankers and, and uh, set up gun embankments around the deck of the boats 
um, and, and float them through the Straits of Hormuz waiting for the uh, Iranians to come out and uh, shoot at us with RPGs and all kinds of other uh, weapons that they had to, to try to stop the boat in the middle of the Straits. So that was, uh, that was our, our role at that point. Um, and then uh, came back home, uh, got discharged from active duty and uh, continued to spend my time with uh, a Marine Reserve unit, the 6th Motor Battalion out of Red Bank. And I stayed with them until uh, right after uh, the invasion of Kuwait. Um, I got reactivated to go back over to Kuwait, which was a, a little, I don't want to say unsettling, but I was aggravated, uh, you know, <laughs> just got just got back from being in the sandbox over there. And here it is, you know, just got sent right back over there. So um, did a, a quick uh, five month stint back in Kuwait um, during the invasion and then came back home and and got out. That was the gist of it. You know, I still maintain a lot of friends uh, that that I served with um, to this day. Still speak to a lot of them. So it was a it was it was a good time. You know, a lot of tears while I was in, but uh, we had a lot of great times. So good stuff. How many total years, Jay, were you in the service? Total six years. Once you were discharged, did you immediately join the local VFW post here in Cranford? No, actually, <laughs> I joined the VFW while. Uh, well, I still was active duty. I, I came oh. back home and and uh, I was on a bus trip to City Field with my dad, um, sponsored by the Elks in South Plainfield. That's where I grew up. And I just I was wearing a Navy cap and, and an old timer that was on the bus, you know, started giving me a whole bunch of grief that I was in the Navy. You know, <laughs> And uh, I was like, listen, I said, I spent more time in, in the jungles and the desert than you did in Vietnam. I said, so I don't want to hear it, you know, and uh <laughs> Come to find out, he was he was the commander of the South Plainfield VFW post, and uh, he signed me up on on that bus ride. And uh, you know, they they supported me. You know, my last year that I was in, and my subsequent deployments um, when I was uh, back in Kuwait. Um, you know, and, and that's actually where I got active was uh, at the South Plainfield VFW, um, and that was that was uh, thirty thirty three years ago that wow. I joined. Wow. Yep. Yep. It's amazing how much time has, has passed by. When did you uh, move over to the Cranford post? I came to Cranford. It, it, it was, it was a tough call. You know, I mean, my wife, when, when we ended up coming into Cranford, when we got married um, and had a couple of kids, we sold our house in Edison and my wife grew up in town and she always loved it. So we moved back to Cranford. Um, she's a kid, probably 2005. And I tried to find a VFW in Cranford couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. And I, I was a little disheartened. My wife's like, I know there's a VFW in town. I was like, I, everybody I'm asking, nobody knows, you know, and I was coaching, you know, basketball for rec in town. And, you know, I'd ask some of the other parents, Hey, you guys know what a VFW is? And and nobody knew, you know? Wow. So, so it wasn't until uh, one day, you know, I was, I was doing something and I ran into Tommy Bell, officer Bell from the police department. And I said, Hey Tom, I said, you know where the hell the VFW is at in town? He was like, yeah, it's right down next to TD Bank. I'm like, what? <laughs> so, so, so hey, there it was, right on the outskirts of town. So, you know, I transferred my membership to uh, to the Cranford Post, and uh, you know, I went to a couple meetings, and, and they had a, a decent amount of members that were at the meeting. But I stood up at the meeting. I said, the problem is, guys, nobody knows you're here. And you know, you had the the old timers that you know at this point was mostly uh, Korean War guys and Vietnam guys. And they're like, oh, you young guys, you don't know what you're talking about. I said, I know that nobody knows you're here. 
And they said, if you want to make a change and try to get as active, then do it. And, and that's what I did. You know, I, I worked with Joe Del Grippo and Jim D'Arcy. And I said, gents, what do we need to do here to make this post viable and uh, a focal point in town? And everybody said, we tried this 10 years ago. So what we ended up doing is we started a color guard. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't say we started. They had a color guard. And we revitalized the color guard. Mm-hmm. We got we got uniforms that were all the same. Everything was congruent, you know, and looked good. Mm-hmm. And that was that was the, the the first part to revitalizing the Cranford Post. And you know, we ended up uh, as the color guard at the time started doing you know parades in town, me being more visible. We actually did. Uh, uh, NFL events for the Giants and Jets as wow. a color guard. They, they saw us at some what uh, some parade somewhere, and they were like, you guys look good. We'd like for you to come do a Veterans Day event at, at, for the Jets at their training center. And we did the same thing for the Giants. Um, and we've been asked to do things throughout the state. And, and now anybody that goes to Cranford football games sees a color guard every Friday night at, at the Cranford football games as well as graduation. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of other things you know, that, that we do, but that is like what we like to say is our, our main uh, forward facing role that, that the public gets to see of the veterans in Cranford. Um, and, and it's been successful. And, and now our color guard is a great mix of Vietnam veterans, as well as Iraq Afghan veterans. Our post now is run a hundred percent by Iraq Afghan veterans. You know, we, we don't minimize the contributions of, you know, our Korean War veterans and our Vietnam veterans are there always to consult and provide support to, to the members. And, you know, we see that throughout the state as well. You know, we're seeing that transition now. You know, there's we're at that 30 year mark where your your early Iraq Afghan veterans are now having families. The kids are a little bit older. So now they're getting more involved in the organization and they're coming back home and taking forward leading roles in, in the post. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a great transition, you know, at this point. And, and, and it's refreshing to see, you know, I mean, I remember walking into the post in South Plainfield, you know, 30 some years ago, you know, and I, I was the youngest play, youngest, younger person at the bar and God just saying, what the hell are you doing here? What were you in? You know, it's like, so, <laughs> you know, so I've seen the whole transition and, 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 and it's something that's refreshing, you know, because um, Without that 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 younger generation coming back in, you tend to lose your focus and you, and you start to dwindle, you know. And we still have a lot of work that we need to do. And it's great to see that the younger members are stepping up and and, and taking that bull by the horns and and wrestling it down and, and moving the organization forward. You touched on a couple of things that I wanted to ask about. You talked about when you first joined and a lot of the older members, there wasn't a lot of activity at the time. And when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, almost everybody knew veterans because there were, the draft was still in place. And, you know, it seems like all of my friends' fathers served in one branch or another of the military. Uh, so there were many more people who were familiar with military life. And one thing that it seems that is happening with a lot of volunteer organizations, whether they're connected with the military or not, is that it's older members. It's more difficult to get younger members to become active in these types of organizations. So those two things combine the fact that we no longer have a draft and 
military experience is not as widespread as it once was when, when I was growing up. And the fact that organizations tend to have older membership, how do you counteract some of that to increase both the visibility and the activity of the organization? Well, that, I mean, you have a very valid point, Bernie, and, and that, that is, that's an issue that you see across many organizations. And I'll use the American Legion as an example. The American Legion expanded their criteria, I guess it was five years ago, to try to increase their membership, right? Because they, they saw that they, I don't say they were a dying organization, but their participation was, was dramatically impacted over the last 15 years, right? with the increased death of your World War II veterans and Korean War veterans, just, just a natural course of life. They saw their membership starting to decline. Um, so they thought that they had a magic pill that they could expand their criteria to allow more members into the American Legion. Well, that didn't necessarily help them. Their membership has stayed flat over the last seven years. So when you turn around and look at what you need to do, it, it, a lot of it is about perception, right? Mm -hmm. what's, the, what's the value your organization plays for members, for the community, for veterans, right? And if you can't address those three things, you're not going to get members to want to come in and join. And, and that's exactly what we did in Cranford. We addressed those three things. So we continue our advocacy during COVID. We were one of the few organizations in town, despite the governor's executive order, saying that we couldn't have the post open. Just because we couldn't have our physical building open didn't mean that we stopped providing services, right? We still provided food for our housebound veterans that were in local in the community. We delivered food to them. We still did our outreach to our veterans in our veterans' home down in Menlo Park, despite having the highest death rate in the country at Menlo Park, our VFW continued to still provide support to those families and those members that, not just members, but veterans that were living in those facilities, right? We continued to do blood drives throughout Cranford religiously every 60 days with the New York Blood Center that were sponsored by the Veterans of Foreign Wars, not just in Cranford, but throughout the state, because that was one of the key things that the governor's order said that it was an essential piece that was allowed to continue to happen. So while they had to expand some of their criteria for blood drives, like the square footage, our post wasn't big enough to hold a blood drive. We were able to work with the municipality and the township, specifically Cranford and, and Steve Robertazzi over at REC, that they were able, because the REC center was closed down, if you remember, for two years during COVID, mm -hmm. that they were allowed, because of this was an essential service, to allow us to sponsor blood drives at the REC center. Right. So we continue to be a viable piece of Cranford activity. Right. Sponsored by the VFW. We put things out there. We continue to do activities outside for our members, whether it was our our Pearl Harbor Day ceremony that's been going on on Pearl Harbor Day every day, every year since, you know, Pearl Harbor. Um, mm -hmm. We've continued to do that. And it's it's outside. Um, so folks could still participate in that. We still had our Veterans Day breakfast, you know, that we have that's open to the community, not just veterans, open to the community so they can come and interact with veterans and see what goes on in your veterans organizations, right? So if you don't address those things, you're right, your organization is going to die. And right now, you know, our organization is a vibrant organization, not just in Cranford, not just in District 5, which is Union County, not just in the state but as well as nationally. The Veterans of Foreign Wars, while 
we've had a huge hit because of COVID deaths for our older members, we still continue to grow. We're not like some of those other uh, service organizations where they, they're having a difficult time to get folks to join because we've noticed, you know, that you have that cycle, right? And we're on the upswing of that cycle for combat veterans to come back into the fold. And some of them, you know, might have joined when they got discharged at a yellow ribbon ceremony with the guard. And they've been paying members for the last 15, 20 years. Well, now they're coming into the fold and they're taking active roles in the post and continuing to move the mission forward. So that, that's where it sets us different than other community organizations or veteran organizations that are struggling to find membership. Because it's not just about the canteen. And that was the biggest uh, rip that I heard from our members um, throughout the state as I campaigned for state commander. It was like, you don't care about the bar. And I'm like, you're right, I don't. I said, because providing veteran services isn't about slinging beer across the bar, right? Mm -hmm. It's about getting out in the community. It's about, for me, I'm probably one of the most known folks down at the state house when it comes to veterans legislation, right? When I walk into the state house, you know, everybody knows that the VFW is in the house, right? Uh -huh. um, and, and we don't stop, you know, and, and, and that's gotten it to, to the point where we actually have quarterly meetings with the governor. So, you know, there's four of us that, you know, we go to the governor's office down the street from the state house and we sit down at a board table and, you know, we have conversation with them for an hour and a half, two hours, you know, about veterans issues, right? There's no other veteran service organization that does that, right? And and that is a feather in our cap to the activities that our posts do, as well as our activity on the state level when it comes to legislative work, right? That And that that's truly what we're about and driving that point home makes us and sets us aside from other organizations. One does not become the state commander just without having been active in the organization. What were some of the things that you've done prior to becoming state commander? So um, the Cranford Post was my launching board. I, I can't say that if, if it wasn't for the Cranford Post, I would not have been able to continue to run through the chairs and, and be as successful as I've been at a state and national level for the VFW. Um, our post, like I said, when the old timers challenged me to make a move at the post and change things, we went from being an unknown post to uh, being the number 26 post, the number 26 post in the VFW world. And uh -huh. I say world because the VFW has posts throughout the world. We have them in Japan, Okinawa, Korea, Italy, Germany, France, England, Ireland is the most recent one that opened up. Um, so we were the number 26 one ranked based on our community service and our activities and some other metrics that they look at. Um, and, and that was a big feather in our cap because our post had, and it's called an All-American Post. Our post had never been an All-American Post in, you know, the 100 years at that point that it had been in existence. Um, and and that, was a, that was a big deal. And uh, that kind of put us on the map, you know, and you know, when, when Colonel Burns took over as the post commander, as I moved along, I said, I said, Drew, you have uh, big shoes to fill, you know, and uh, we've been an All-American Post uh, two times since then. So, you know, we, we continue to, uh, to strive to provide that service. But to answer your question, so, you know, I ran through the, the chairs of the post. Um, Joe Del Grippo actually was the first person to really push me to get involved with the state VFW. Um, he said, kid, you're, you're too smart and you're too full of piss and vinegar 
um, <laughs> to waste your time. And, and if anybody knows Joe Del Grippo, that's exactly how he would say it. Um, you know, that uh, it, to waste your, your, your efforts just at the local level. You know, there, there's much more that you can bring to the organization. And he got me put on a committee as the POW MIA chairman, prisoner of war, missing in action chair uh, for, the, the, for the state of New Jersey. Um, and that gave me a lot of exposure nationally. Um, as well as at the state level. And I got to see a lot of things of how, how things run. Um, and it, it really gave me some good challenges, which, which I was happy to take on. Um, it, it, there hadn't been uh, an update session for uh, the POW MIA families in the Northeast for almost 25 years. Um, and I reached out to my national counterpart to say, we need to have this taken care of. So we reached out to the, the League of Families um, that runs the, uh, the survivors uh, group uh, organization. And we were able to get one down in Philadelphia that they were able to, to garner uh, DNA samples from uh, surviving uh, dependents of some of these uh, missing in action POWs that we still have in Korea and uh, Vietnam, uh, Germany, Europe. Um, and, and out of that, uh, that family update session, as they called it, um, we were able to identify seven New Jersey residents um, that had been listed as missing in action. So, you know, we had had the remains. Some of them came from Korea with uh, the, uh, the caskets that they had turned over during President Trump's tenure, um, but they didn't have DNA. And, and as a result of these update sessions, uh, we were able to, to get the DNA to, to provide closure to some of the families in New Jersey um, that had relatives that had gone missing during you know, multiple conflicts. So that, that was my uh, first exposure at, at the state and national level. And from there, I just uh, became a chairman for uh, a variety of different committees. One of them was a membership committee. And the other one was uh, the homeless uh, stand down committee, homeless committee for the state of New Jersey for the VFW. Um, which really gave me an, a, a high level view of homelessness and the needs of uh, uh, homeless veterans throughout New Jersey. And, and, and I hate to use the, the term homeless because it's kind of condescending uh, for a lot of folks. And, you know, there's many people and I don't care whether you're a veteran or not. You know, many folks are living paycheck to paycheck and, and literally, you know, one paycheck away or half a paycheck away from from having some issues. Right. And uh, I kind of changed the. The, the term from homeless veteran to disenfranchised veteran, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not just about homelessness. It's about food insecurity. It's about, you know, being underemployed, which you see for a lot of veterans, they're underemployed, um, where they really could, uh, you know, do much better than what they're doing. But, you know, because of the economy and, and other things that are out there, you know, maybe it's a service-connected disability that's holding them back. But it's, it's more that you're looking at, at the, the veteran as a whole, not just as a label, right? When you say homeless veteran, you know, right now there, there's literally less than 500 homeless veterans in New Jersey when you look at the census count that was out there. Um, but when you look at the disenfranchised veterans, you know, you there's a big difference of folks that need other needs, right? Um, and, and that's really what our focus is on now. You know, we started doing that last year. We did a big resource fair in Cranford um, during COVID, once again, that we ended up bringing in the VA in. Uh, we did over at Centennial Ave Pool in the parking lot. We had the VA come in. We had the Vet Center come in. We had other uh, community organizations help us. And, uh, you know, we provided services to, 
you know, 15 veterans that, that needed other assistance. Some of it was rental assistance. Some of it was food. Others were medical. You know, a guy walked in and said, you know, I, I haven't been seen by a doctor because I can't get an appointment at the VA. Well, you know what? The guy got checked out right there at, at the, the clinic that we had set up. And he was taken right to the hospital because the guy's blood pressure was like 200 over 110 or oh, something. Wow. You know, so so these are the kind of things that you use as tools to, to help out veterans. Right. And it's not just the veterans that benefit from that. It's their dependents and significant others. Right. So it, it's really take a look at the full total family network, right, that, that you need to address issues with. And, and that's really what we're doing. And, and when you say, how do we get younger veterans in? When folks see that level of support that we do, that's where you see these younger veterans come in saying, I want to be a part of that organization. They're not just a bar. They're not just about giving me a bourbon and a shot, you know, and that, that, that's not what it's about. They're doing active things in the community. As we wrap things up, we want to mention the fact that I believe you are the second state commander from the Cranford Post. Uh, Vince yeah. Brinkerhoff preceded you. Tell us a, a little bit about that connection, if you would, please. Brink, as everybody knows him, Brink, uh, Brinkerhoff, you know, was was well known throughout town. He was a uh, a pretty stoic figure, if I want to use that word, right, <laughs> to, to, to describe Brink, right? I didn't know him personally. I just hear the thousand and one stories um, about Brink. Um, you know, I, I see his handiwork all over the post. Um, he was a post commander. He was a district commander um, in Union County. And uh, he also was uh, a policeman and, and chief of police, if I remember correctly, for Cranford, as well as mayor. So Brink was well known. Uh, his wife was uh, a very active part uh, of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, as well as the auxiliary. Um, and she did her part at the state level. And she's now uh, super involved in the VFW, if I remember correctly. It's in Texas where she relocated. But everywhere I go, you know, I, I hear you got big shoes to fill, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't care whether it's at the national level. You know, I was at some national meetings a couple months ago out in Kansas City and everybody said, you're from Brinkerhoff's Post. Not, hey, you're from Cranford 335. <laughs> you're from Brinkerhoff's Post, right? I was like, wow, you know, like can't even have our own identity. It's Brinkerhoff identity, right? So he made an impact, you know, at the national level and, uh, you know, it's great that, that we are able to have, you know, somebody else come through Cranford um, and represent uh, the town and, and the post, you know, I mean, because Cranford, when I travel around the state and I look at it, you know, it's uh, Norman Rockwell town, right? And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can't say that enough. You know, when I say, hey, I, I'm happy to be back in town and, and I feel welcome, it, it's what Cranford's about, right? And, you know, you don't see that every place that I go around the town, around the towns or the state. Um, you know, I travel a lot around the country for the VFW. Um, and, and you don't see that, right? You see a, a post somewhere and it's it's in the middle of nowhere and it's, it's not supported by it. it's, it's townspeople. And you don't have that in Cranford. You know, we're, we're a part of the town. The town's a part of us. And that's what it should be. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to call Cranford home and, and proud to say that I'm a a member of, of our organization in town and you know it's it's what it is supposed to be and, and we live it every day and, and the residents of Cranford live it every day and that's I can't put it any other way you know it's 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 Americana as you see in the pictures and paintings and it's what we are. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we've been talking on this edition, this Independence Day weekend edition of Cranford Radio with Jay Boxwell Jr. He is the new state commander of the Department of New Jersey Veterans of Foreign Wars. Jay, thank you for your service in the Navy and thank you for your continued service in the VFW. No problem. You're welcome. You guys have all earned it and I would do it all again. <laughs>